Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Ruth chapter one. Last week we began with an introduction to the book of Ruth. And some things to keep in mind as we studied it were presented to you. Let's kind of very briefly review that. First of all, this small 85-verse book is quite complex. And it deals with several foundational and advanced Torah principles. And this is as opposed to the more usual concept that this is a book that's entirely about presenting us with a Messiah-type figure in Boaz framed in a love story. Now, while indeed such a concept is, is present in the book, that's really only a small part of it all. Now, second, the book was composed several centuries after the actual happenings that are recorded here. Ruth lived around the time of the judge Gideon. But the story, at least as we currently have it, wasn't written or perhaps finalized until sometime between the end of King Solomon's reign around 900 B.C. and the exile of Judah to Babylon around 600 B.C. And third, the location in our Bibles of the book of Ruth varies according to which ancient manuscripts any particular Bible was translated from. If it was from the Greek Septuagint, Ruth will be found immediately following Judges. However, if it was taken from the Hebrew Tanakh, then Ruth will be found just following the Song of Solomon. And fourth, Ruth was a Gentile, born in the land of Moab. Her ancestors were Lot and his father Haran, and he, Haran, was the brother of Abraham. Now, it's significant that this is one of only two books written in the Bible named for Gentiles. The other one being Job. And finally, while there is an extensive list of purposes that this book undoubtedly was meant to address, the chief one in the mind of its God-inspired anonymous human writer was probably to demonstrate the house of David's permanent right to the throne of Israel. And this was in response to an ongoing undercurrent of dissension among the tribe of Israel stemming from a a battle between political factions. One believing that the descendants of King Saul... The first king of Israel ought to rule continuously. And the other, that the descendants of King David ought to rule. And that had a lot to do with the civil war and then breaking up of Israel shortly after King Solomon's death into two separate kingdoms, usually dubbed the northern and the southern kingdoms. We find that the north, at first preferred Saul's successors, and in the south, they preferred David's. Well, let's reread, or read rather, chapter 1. Now, last week, I was 
a little more preachy than teachy with you. I'm going to be nearly the opposite this week. So I again warn you with the caveat that while Ruth will be a fascinating study, it's also going to get technical and detailed at times. So stay alert as we move from the basic math of Holy Scripture to algebra. Turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, which is in page 1057 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Back in the days when the judges were judging at a time when there was a famine in the land, a certain man from Beit Lechem went to live in the territory of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. And that man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were named Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephratim from Beit Lechem in Yehuda, and they arrived in the plain of Moab and settled there. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, she and her two sons. Well, they took wives for themselves from the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about ten years. Then Machlon and Kilion died, both of them. And the woman was left with neither her, her two sons nor her husband. So she prepared to return with her daughters-in-law from the plains of Moab. For in the plains of Moab she had heard how Adonai had paid attention to his people by giving them food. She left the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and took the road leading back to Judah. Naomi saw her two daughters-in-law, said to her two daughters-in-law, Each of you, go back to your mother's house. May Adonai show grace to you as you did to those who died and to me. May Adonai grant you security in the home of a new husband. And then she kissed them, but they began weeping aloud. And they said to her, No, no, we want to return with you to your people. And Naomi said, Go back, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb who could become your husbands? Go back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I were to say... I still have hope. Even if I had a husband tonight and bore sons, would you wait for them until they grew up? Would you refuse to marry just for them? No, my daughters. On your behalf I feel very bitter that the hand of Adonai has gone out against me. And again they wept aloud, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth stuck with her. She said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. You go back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't press me to leave you and stop following you, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May Adonai bring terrible curses on me, and worse ones as well if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, where they arrived in Bethlehem. The whole city was stirred with excitement over them. The women asked, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she answered them. Call me Marah, because Shaddai has made my life very bitter. 
I went out full, but Adonai has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Adonai has testified against me. Shaddai has afflicted me. This is how Naomi returned with Ruth the woman from Moab, her daughter-in-law, accompanying her from the plains of Moab. They arrived in Beit Lechem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The book opens by placing the story of Ruth in space and time in a very general way by simply saying when the judges were judging. Uh, even a slightly more specific reference to the dating of it being when there was a famine in the land is only marginally helpful. And we've already covered the likelihood that this was a several year time period of Gideon when the Midianites were always descending like locusts upon Israel to steal their food supply at harvest time and thus throwing the Hebrews into starvation. But by no means can we say that that's certain. This also begs the question, why didn't the author of Ruth more definitively peg the events to chronology for our benefit? Well, it certainly doesn't seem like it would be terribly difficult, nor would it take too much writing time to do that. The answer is, that the Hebrew Bible doesn't attach much importance to when something happened, but rather what happened, who was involved, and its effect upon Israel's development as a set-apart nation for Yehovah. You know, that's part of the reason that we have this ongoing and seemingly unsolvable young earth, old earth, battle because the first words of Genesis are ambiguous in setting up the time frame of the creation does it mean to inform us that the substance of earth and heaven was part of the six day creation process or does it mean that the earth was roughly and incompletely formed and then at some indeterminate time later God began the six day process of sculpting it into a place that could sustain life. There are strong opinions on both sides. I'm not going to debate the issue with you today. The point is that the writer of the first words of Genesis, usually credited to Moses, could have rather easily straightened this whole matter out with but the addition of a handful more words. But he didn't. Why? Just to torment us? No, it was because in the Hebrew mind it was secondary and unimportant. See, the point and purpose of the opening words of Genesis were not when, but whom. When the earth came into being wasn't the issue. It was who brought it into being that was the issue. The question of when really only matters to the more modern mind of rational Greek thinkers. That's you and me. Who want additional proof of the existence of a creator God and the legitimacy of our divine texts 
in describing that creation. The ancient Hebrews needed no such proofs. So while I'm sure the ambiguity of the first words of Genesis provoked some small amount of curiosity among them, that's about as far as it went. Not because they were small-minded or unintelligent, but because for them, and all the rest of the known world, a creator God was self-evident. And what we call the need for proof and satisfying the scientific model wasn't even sought after. So it simply wasn't addressed. Interestingly, the opening statement of the book of Ruth is not only unclear regarding precisely when, but also where. It says that this famine was occurring in the Eretz. The land. What land? Well, it all depends on your point of view. In general, the Eretz is the land of Canaan, later to be called the land of Israel. It was located on the west bank of the Jordan. Here's the Jordan. It was located over here. But does this mean that the famine engulfed the land of Canaan from the Sinai Peninsula all the way to the border with Lebanon? No. Okay. Again, the precise boundaries of the area affected by that famine weren't terribly important to the storyline. Now, if you were of the tribe of Judah, the land is where you were living. If you were of the tribe of Manasseh, the land is where you had settled. Apparently, Bethlehem was in the afflicted region of Canaan. And the lack of food was ongoing and serious enough that it caused some families to seek better prospects outside of their own nation. The use of the term Bethlehem of Judah, all right, adding of Judah, is because there were several Bethlehems in Canaan. And this was because Bethlehem simply means house of bread. But in the sense that it was intended in those days, it meant house of food. Okay? A house of food was what they called a granary. Okay? A Bethlehem was a town where there was a grain storage depot. All right? And of course, there were several grain storage facilities scattered throughout the land of Canaan and the various tribal territories. The one this story, the story of Ruth, is concerned with was the one that was in Judah, in the same place where our Messiah was born. Now, one Hebrew family of many who moved to a foreign land to weather this famine was headed by a fellow named Elimelech, meaning, my God is king. Now, Elimelech had a wife, Naomi, and two sons, Machlon and Kilion. And he chose Moab for some untold reason as his family's place of refuge and survival. Now, technically... There was no nation of Moab during the time of Judges. Rather, it was just an easy and familiar way to refer to this particular territory on the east side of the Jordan, bordering the Dead Sea. Moab 
was conquered and taken over by the tribes of Reuben and Gad even before Joshua led Israel across the Jordan into Canaan, probably around 30 to 40 years before the time of Ruth. So saying Moab was just kind of a holdover and a common way of speaking at that time. However, as we found out in our study of Joshua and Judges, while it may have seemed, as we look at a various map, that, that, that uh, look at various places on a map, that, a, that, that uh, large blocks of land within Israel were fully settled and controlled by the um, various 12 tribes, you know, in reality, when we kind of look a little closer, is that these 12 allotted territories had alternating pockets of Canaanite settlements and Hebrew settlements that were generally side by side and coexisting. It was the same on the east bank of the Jordan. People of Moabite ancestry, like Ruth, continued to live in their own villages side by side with other villages inhabited by the relative newcomers the descendants of Reuben and Gad. But as is the case with the whole book of Ruth, even another complexity is added when we're told in verse 2 that Elimelech's family were Ephratites. Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. What's an Ephratite? Well, there's been some disagreement about this, but as of now, this matter has been mostly resolved. We're going to find some, or at least a few places in the Old Testament, that the term Ephratite is present, and sometimes it's obviously attached to the people of Ephraim. At other times, though, it's not. However, more and more it seems that what we probably have is a very early copyist error, or maybe just a translation error, when the word Ephratite is connected to Ephraim. And the reason for this is quite simple. The only difference in spelling between Ephrath and Ephraim is the last letter of the word. In the, Hebrew, in the English alphabet, that would be a T or an M, but in Hebrew, the last letter is either a Tav or a Mem. And they look almost identical. And so it was a rather easy and common copy or translation error through the centuries. So the point is, what we don't have here in Ruth is a claim that Elimelech and his family were members of the tribe of Ephraim, as some have tried to say. They were not. Rather it is also that Ephrath was actually just an earlier name for Bethlehem. Genesis 35.19 So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. It was just an earlier name for the city. Yet Why would the family of Elimelech be called Ephratites and then said to be from Bethlehem? That would seem like to be a redundant thing to say. 
I mean, so how does being an Ephratite distinguish them from the other Hebrew families living in Bethlehem? To this there is again no certain answer. But likely it is that the term Ephratite was given to a certain clan of Hebrews, likely of the tribe of Judah, that were living there. And it's not a formal name, but a nickname. Let me explain. Ephrat means something like fruitfulness or abundance. It was a word that was often applied to a town or a general area because that place was unusually fertile and it was known for the, for the quality of its produce, how well things grew there. And since Hebrew is a language and a culture that gives names to people that are usually fairly common words that, just, that have a very definite meaning, Yeshua, God saves, Eli Melech, my God is king, etc. Okay. We're going to even find women in the Bible who are named Ephrath, or some form of that word. And notice, now, this interesting association between Bethlehem, which means house of food, a granary, and Ephrath, meaning fruitful, or abundant. That the place Elimelech was from was very fruitful, and therefore, early on, called Ephrath, later called Bethlehem, which is, again, essentially a large warehouse to store the fruitfulness, the change in name from Ephrath to Bethlehem is really little more than a simple modification of the nickname over time. Okay? Now, probably the clan of Elimelech was known for their wealth based on farming. Right? Thus, they were given the nickname the clan of Ephrath, the clan of fruitfulness, the clan of abundance. And thus they were renowned as the fruitful clan living in Bethlehem, just as we might look upon a wealthy family in a small town and identify them that same way. Now I took you on this little side trip, not only to present you with an interesting tidbit of information, but also as one of the many evidences of what in reality is a very straightforward book that the Old Testament amounts to. It certainly was straightforward to the people of old. And it demonstrates if we'll only take the time to understand their culture. Suddenly, the mysterious or redundant or unintelligible Old Testament statements make all kinds of sense to us. Now back in verse 1, we're told that this man, Elimelech, took his family to sojourn in Moab. Now in Hebrew, the word being translated is gur. And it means to go someplace for a while, but not with the intent of making it your new home. Now I only point this out because the narrative makes it clear that this family was not permanently moving to Moab. Rather, they just intended to stay there as long as was necessary, then they would return. They were not changing their nationality. They weren't giving up their allegiance. They were just long-term visitors. However, the rabbis had an interesting twist on this. 
and one we shouldn't so easily dismiss. They ask themselves why, as we find out in the third verse, that this family experienced such devastating loss while they were in Moab. For there, Naomi's husband died, as well as both of her children, sons, who had married Moabite women. I mean, such a horror could only be seen as a curse from God. I'm going to add to that thought a little while later. All three males in this story died early deaths, which was considered an indication of divine action. So, if it was a punishment from Yehovah, what was the sin? Well, here is the Jewish mind on that subject. In Genesis Rabbah 28, which is a Jewish commentary, we read this. Our rabbis taught that it is not permitted to go forth from the land of Israel to a foreign country unless one se'ah is sold for two se'ahs. means a se'ah is a unit of dry measurement equaling about two gallons. Meaning in this case that the prices for food um, had doubled and thus had become all but unaffordable. uh, unaffordable. Rabbi Shimshon said, this is permitted only uh, only when one cannot find anything to buy. But when one is able to find something to buy, even if one say ah, costs a selah, now selah is a very hard Hebrew word to define, but as used here it means an extensive Bible teaching or a profound religious instruction that one literally pays dearly to obtain. Okay? So he says, unless that condition is met, one must not depart the land of Israel. And so, said Rabbi Shimon bar Yophai, Elimelech, Machlon, and Kilion were among the notables of their generation, and they were leaders of their generation. Why then were they punished? Because they left the land of Israel for a foreign country. Now, there is actually some very good insight here, and it dovetails quite neatly with the scriptures. See, this is saying, that indeed, from the rabbi's point of view, Elimelech's family felt the wrath of God, all the family males died, because they left the land too easily. That it was not that there was no food available, nothing to buy, but rather it's only that the Midianites made their lives difficult by stealing much of their food supply and thus making food more scarce and more expensive. It also meant that this well-to-do farming family, the Ephrath, the abundant clan, had the most to lose because their land holdings were large and they lost so much of their crop incomes to these marauders. So rather than stay in the promised land under difficult but not necessarily unbearable conditions, as they should have, they left for an easier life. They belonged in the promised land. Not just any place that suited them. They belonged in a land that God had set aside for them. He had set aside for them 
at a cost of millions of Egyptian lives, thousands of Israelite lives, and the loss of land and liberty and life for countless Canaanites. Result, God severely punished this family. I think these rabbis nailed it. And we're going to see shortly that Naomi adopts the same line of thinking here in the scriptures. Now verses 3 and 4 explain that while in Moab, Elimelech died. And that his two sons had married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. But during the decade the family spent in Moab, these two sons also died. Notice we get no cause of death. But it was probably disease or accident. Because if their death had been caused at the hands of another, we would have seen the term killed and not died. Okay. Now as a matter of clarity, the mention of the ten years here was not how long the Moabite women had been married to Elimelech's sons before they died. Rather, it was the total amount of time that the family had sojourned in Moab to this point. But the tragic result of all this was that Naomi, a relatively old woman, now had no husband and no sons and therefore no means of income. And the rest of the story essentially deals with the very serious problems that this caused for Naomi and how it would be remedied by the ever-faithful Lord whom she steadfastly worshipped even in a foreign place where Chemosh was the chief deity. Now let me say something to you at this point that might be counterintuitive but it's also something that you need to know before we go any farther as it will put this entire story in proper perspective. While the book is named for Ruth, in reality the central character is Naomi. Ruth has lost her husband, as has Orpah. But that can generally be remedied by remarriage. And if the girls were young and even better, attractive, right, remarriage was the most likely outcome for them. Further, it was the custom of that era that young widows would be welcomed back into their father's home and cared for indefinitely, just like when they were virgins. So the prospects for a decent life for a young widow was generally good. But for an older woman beyond her childbearing years, probably beyond the ability to work hard and provide needed labor for a family, to become a widow and have no sons to care for you was near a death sentence. Okay. At the least, it foretold a meager existence of poverty and deprivation. So the book of Ruth is essentially a tale of how a major problem for Naomi was graciously solved by God through Ruth and Boaz. Okay, If you keep that in mind as we go, you're going to get the most out of this marvelous little book. Now, some have taught 
that Elimelech's and Naomi's sons were wrong for taking Moabite wives, and thus Elimelech was wrong for allowing it. That's not necessarily so in my view. There was no command from God against doing such a thing. Deuteronomy 7.3 forbade marriage to Canaanites, but not to Moabites. Now, one argument against my position is that Deuteronomy 23.3 says that no Moabite may enter the congregation of Israel until the tenth generation. Which can only mean the tenth generation after Israel entered the promised land. And it's unlikely that ten generations had passed by the time of the story of Ruth. However, the Hebrew word for congregation is kahal. And it has a little more nuanced meaning than simply something like Israelites at large or the general population of Israel. Rather, kahal usually denotes full citizenship without reservation in Israel. It denotes the ability and the status to serve as a leader or an elder or to participate in the rituals and observances or to assemble on holy occasions on the tabernacle grounds. Things like that. Resident aliens were not permitted such things. And apparently, some foreign women who married into Israel were also excluded. Perhaps because they refused to stop worshipping their former gods. In any case, it does not appear that the taking of foreign wives was the issue for the terrible tragedies of the Elimelech family. It was simply the leaving of the Holy Land for a foreign place when it was not at all necessary for their survival. Now there's been a lot of conjecture over the centuries about the names of the six people thus far identified in this story. Naomi plainly means delightful or or pleasant, something like that. And of course, Elimelech is clearly, my God is king. These are both good, standard, recognizable Hebrew names. However, it gets a little dicier regarding the names of the two sons and their Moabite wives. Ruth, which is Ruth or Raut in Hebrew, was probably not a Hebrew name. It was Moabite. Because Ruth became so highly regarded by the Hebrews, it also eventually became an adopted name used among Israelite females. But the meaning is not entirely certain. Most often it is said to mean friendship. And there's really no reason not to think otherwise, as it is generally not disputed to speak of. And it fits very well with the theme of the story. Or Pa, the other daughter-in-law, is often said by Jewish sages to mean stiff-necked. Or firmness. Something like that. Now the idea being that she takes a strong position and she can't be swayed, or that she's not comfortable with change. Something along that order. Okay. However, just as we'll see regarding the two sons' names, very probably 
these were not their real names. But rather they were epithets that became nicknames for them. Because these names identify their roles in the story. Understand, this doesn't mean the story is a contrived fairy tale. It's just common among ancient literature to use a device that that, that when stories are meant to be handed down word of mouth, they'll they'll attach a name that kind of gives that person a bad guy's role or a good guy's role or the hero's role in that story. The one son, we're told, is named Mahlon, which is said to mean weak or weakling. And the other is Kilion, which is said to mean failure or failing. Now, mothers, I don't think anybody would name their children those names. I'd like you to meet my son, the failure. Which is all the more evidence that these were descriptions used as names by the writer to achieve a desired effect and to make the story memorable and easily retold. He may not even have known the real given names of any of the characters in the story except perhaps Elimelech and Naomi and probably Boaz as well. So the widow Naomi... who now also has no sons, hears that the famine in her homeland has ended and she determines it's time for her to return. Now it's interesting how her viewpoint is that Yehovah had visited the Eretz, the promised land, and given them lechem, bread. Remember, this is just a common expression that actually means food. Okay. Now what this shows us is that Naomi's mind, in Naomi's mind, the famine that forced Naomi's family to leave the land in the first place was divinely brought about. And thus, the ending of the famine was also due to God's intervention. Saying that she arose with her daughters-in-law is an expression that means to start a journey. Just a standard Hebrew expression. You see the term arise or they arose. It means it's the beginning of a journey. Okay? So it was expressly Naomi's initiative to return home to Bethlehem at this time. The two girls, her two daughters-in-law, were just tagging along. Now the story gains speed. Naomi insists that her daughters-in-law go back home to their biological mothers. Moabites. Moabite mothers, of course. The wording of the statement is unusual because it's not normal to refer to the family home as the mothers. Rather, it's always the fathers. It is thought that the idea that they are to go home to be comforted by their mothers, who better to comfort their daughters, all right, um, Was was the, was at the bottom of this, all right? That it just basically was that they would go home and stay there temporarily until they gained new husbands. And I can't disagree with any of this assessment, but I also think there's a much simpler solution that plays a very pivotal role in this story, 
It is that this whole story revolves around women. And it's being told from a woman's point of view. I mean, it deals with women's issues of that day in a male-dominated society. And it shows the value of women in the eyes of God and how their value should be regarded in Hebrew society. And it shows the important nurturing aspects of mothers and women in general. Thus, it's appropriate here to speak of the mother's home and not the father's in this case. I mean, goodness knows if there is a favorite Bible story of the modern-day Judeo-Christian woman, it must be Ruth. Because it has so many elements of love and romance coupled with a tender and thoughtful male who rides to the rescue with the woman's best interest at heart. But verse 8 throws us another interesting statement. Whereby Naomi blesses these two girls by saying, May Yehovah deal kindly with you in like manner that they, the daughters-in-laws, dealt with their dead husbands. What does that mean? Well, what it decidedly does not mean is that they have shown respect and kindness to their husbands' memories. We've talked about ancient burial practices and beliefs concerning what happened after death. And even among the Hebrews, ancestor worship still played a major role in their thinking. The thought that someone died and went to heaven didn't exist. Rather, it was that the dead existed in some form or another under the ground in the place of the dead. And they needed tending. Abraham's bosom and the place of torments were both underground chambers. Okay. So it was up to the children or the, or, or the widow or, or some other close family member to bring food to the burial site to sustain the spirit of the dead person. And to say prayers on behalf of the deceased. And especially to continue speaking that deceased's name so that it didn't disappear. If a name stopped being spoken, it essentially ended the afterlife of that person. Apparently, Ruth and Orpah were diligently doing all the customary things that... Uh, to tend to their dead husbands. Thus, they were showing direct kindness to the dead men themselves. Follow that? Further, it was going to be important for the two dead husbands that their widows, Ruth and Orpah, get remarried since they were childless. Okay, Because by custom... The essence of the deceased male in some form lived on in his firstborn son. Thus, if he never had sons during his lifetime and he died, his essence had no place to live on. Since these two fathers died uh, childless, 
It was customary among Hebrews that when these women remarried, the first son born to them would be dedicated in the name of the deceased husband. Thus the dead man's line was rescued and it continued. The complication here, of course, is these were Moabite women who, if they did what Ruth was admonishing them to do, would go home to mama. Go home to a Moabite family and likely marry Moabite men and live in Moabite territory. So how is all this ever going to work? Okay, And the answer is we don't know. Because the concept of levirate marriage, a brother being responsible to marry his deceased brother's wife and then father a child with her, that concept was uniquely Hebrew. However, these two dead sons had no brothers to perform Leverite marriage with. So now what? Well, this difficult situation that the story has painted also helps to explain what comes next. When Naomi told her daughters-in-law to depart from her and go home to their mothers and find new husbands, we see a very sad scene and where, where all three women begin to cry and weep loudly kind of a typical Middle Eastern reaction. It's obvious that Naomi was at the center of a great attachment between them. But in the same sentence, a Hebrew word is used that is a powerful one. A word that Gentiles need to get to know a little bit. Because Hebrew scriptures use it often. The word is hesed. And in this passage, it's used in verse 8, where it says that Yehovah deal kindly. All right, in English, it actually says Yehovah do hesed with you, as you have done with the dead. Naomi's two, sub, uh, two uh, sons, the, the two dead husbands. See, hesed is a lot like the Hebrew word shalom in that it's not a word that has a direct one or two word translation because it's speaking of a complex concept rather than merely a word like a single verb or a noun. Hesed is often translated in our English Bibles as loving kindness. Okay. And while it's not incorrect, it's much too shallow. Okay. It is a word that can often mean ironclad loyalty. At other times, very much something like active love. Okay. In the Old Testament, it's almost always covenant connected and related. So, said implies the mutual and reciprocal rights and duties between parties of a covenant relationship. Hesed is a kind of faithfulness. And it related in this story as the action and attitude of those two girls towards their dead husbands... And so Naomi prays to Yehovah that because these women have demonstrated hesed to her deceased sons, that he would demonstrate hesed to them. Okay? 
And finally, her blessing upon them is that they would eventually have rest, it says, in the house of a new husband. The Hebrew word used here for rest is menucha. Menucha. Menucha more accurately means not rest, but a place of rest. And it includes in it this nuance of warmth and comfort. Okay. Naomi is praying for them to have a husband to comfort them and provide for them. Okay. Now, kissing in the Middle East is generally either a welcome greeting or a goodbye. One or the other. Okay. So when Naomi kissed them, it wasn't so much a kiss of affection or comfort. It was simply the standard way of her saying goodbye to these daughters-in-law and knowing it was farewell, they all broke down into tears. Naomi was doing what was best for these girls. But what about herself? Her prospects were bleak, to say the least. We'll continue the story next week.